1: There's a fire on the mountain, burning out of control. The sky's set ablaze in orange, red, and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground to turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hoods here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for your binge listening pleasure. And I'm joined by a frequent flyer guest because he's just so darn smart, Mr. Matt Robeson. The author of A More Perfect Union a blog devoted to some of the deeper thinking about politics that Matt does. And Matt's also a contributor to thealternet.org, so you can read what he writes all over the internet. Matt, welcome to Off the Record. Great to be on. Well, it's uh getting pretty wild here. We are uh, deep in our bunker on Reddington Road at WKXL AM and FM. I'm surrounded by hand sanitizer. Everywhere I look there's hand sanitizer because it's corona time and I don't I'm not talking about beer and I'm not talking about spring break developments uh with a worldwide pandemic are coming along faster than we seem to be able to keep up with them. Uh, Today, as we're uh, doing this show, I've learned that uh, the Broadway theaters in New York have shut down for six weeks. The NBA has, has canceled their season. Many colleges, some 200, are telling their students not to come home uh, not to come back to campus after spring break, and organizations are deep into planning about what they're going to do and how they're going to handle it. I spent most of my day today as uh, because I'm chairman of the board of a small uh, performing arts venue just across the border from New Hampshire in. Kittery, Maine, called the Dance Hall, a wonderful little place that attracts an audience uh, often of a certain age, an audience of, you know, often gray-haired folks for a varied, a varied program of dance and music and music and dance. And uh, the place holds about, I don't know, a little less than 200 people, let's say, and the board And we are struggling what to do. And as of today, we've decided that we're going to suspend performances for the time being. And on the political front, campaigns are having to adapt to a new reality that we're going to have to take uh, prophylactic measures to try to flatten the curve of the increase in coronavirus cases. In uh, the local news, New Hampshire has So far, five reported cases, and the governor has said, at least as of now, that he's not declaring a state of emergency in New Hampshire. In Massachusetts, where they have, I believe, upwards of 100 confirmed positive diagnoses, uh, the governor has declared a state of emergency. The state of Maine has just reported its first coronavirus positive test. Um, I can tell you, Matt and listeners, that a dear friend of mine recently came back from Italy, and he and his spouse uh, self-quarantined for a few weeks, and he has a very particular point of view, having lived through the Italian crisis, which is still ongoing, and he said, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were facing these same kinds of issues. What do we do? Do we go out? Do we stay in? We've already paid for things. <clears throat> what happens to the businesses? What What should we do? The answer quickly became, uh, we need to be aware that this is a rapidly moving situation that's highly contagious, and we need to do whatever we can to uh, keep uh, the spread uh, under control as long as we can, in order to allow the medical facilities and healthcare care providers to gear up and plan up, and he's his perspective is that the United States lacks leadership from the top that is clear and direct and coordinated, despite the fact that the President has called <coughs> Mr. Pence, the vice President, to lead an effort that our health care system is woefully underprepared for an influx, a surge of coronavirus uh, COVID-19 uh, patients. And he's very concerned about uh, having come back to the United States, um, that he's very concerned about what he sees as lack of leadership uh, and lack of real understanding about the true dangers of, of the disease that's not said to cause panic but it is said that it sounds like that it's up to localities and citizens and folks like us to take uh, precautionary measures within reason and and not to panic but to plan what do you think matt
0: well i think you really hit the nail on the head with the last piece of that there which is the shocking lack of leadership from the federal level if you look at all of the responses that you noted earlier coming from colleges and universities, the NBA, the theater that you're on the board of, and other public institutions in states and uh, around the country, you'll note that all of those steps are being decided by private institutions. And now they're consulting, in most cases, with public health officials in their state. But what is the massive gap in all of those decisions? It's leadership from the federal level. And it's been disastrous because the whole response has been focused on downplaying the scale and danger and risk of the crisis. I'm not trying to be overly critical because there is a role for that kind of public reassurance. But public reassurance doesn't come from minimizing, downplaying, and sugarcoating. It comes from being on top of an aggressive response that you're directing from the governmental level and using governmental resources uh, to mitigate the risks and the dangers, And so I would just contrast with the response, and there's been great reporting that's emerged in the last couple of days about the response undertaken by China and South Korea, the establishment of fever centers, taking temperatures at every apartment complex and every workplace uh, upon entrance uh, and exit, uh, isolation of people in fever centers. Um, drive through testing in South Korea. And so you contrast that with the approach here the utter lack of testing, uh, the backwards approach of focusing on exclusion uh, of travel from other countries, which is backwards from an epidemiological standpoint. What you need to be focusing on is testing, uh, case tracking, uh, finding all possible Uh, uh, tendrils of exposure and isolation. That approach is working. In China, they've gone from several thousand new cases a day down to a rate of 24 new cases a day. So it's an alarming lack of leadership, and uh, it's very concerning. And uh, it's clear that obviously now other institutions are stepping in to fill that gap, but we would be in a much better position if the federal government had undertaken its responsibilities in the right
1: way. You know, there are there are agencies of the federal government that know about disaster preparedness and know about planning for emergencies. It often is called for an extreme weather events. FEMA, for example, could be called to provide field hospitals. FEMA could be called to help coordinate um, uh, a response along with the CDC. There, There was a report recently that that was especially concerning in which the White House apparently um, basically sidelined and castigated an official at the CDC who was delivering factual information. Because what you really need... In a situation like this, and this is an unprecedented situation, and uh, folks know that I'm <clears throat> certainly no fan of Donald Trump, and he hasn't shown himself uh, to be uh, up to the task of uh, leading the nation and leading the response in any organized way. Because what he's talking, what he gets up and talks about, is 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 hooey. He basically. Um, It tells people that he's relying on his hunches, and his hunches are better than anybody else's. Uh, But what we really need is science. What we need is facts. And what we need is a coordinated response from the federal agencies, which coordinate with the state agencies, who coordinate with the local agencies, so that... Not that we're slaves to what the government tells us, but that there is factual information being given by those who are in the best place to know what the statistics are, to know what the proper measures to take are, and to help folks focus on what they can do uh, in order to mitigate <clears throat> Some commentators I've heard recently have pointed out we have a million hospital beds in this country, of which about 700,000 are filled right now. If there's a huge surge of coronavirus patients, that's a problem for our stock of open hospital beds. There's a shortage of ventilators and respirators for those who develop respiratory problems and end up in the hospital because of their respiratory symptoms uh, with (coughs) the coronavirus And we're just not rapidly enough uh, getting uh, to speed. So it's up to us as citizens to make decisions. You know, Matt, uh, I uh, folks know that I have been contemplating uh, a run for the state senate. I'm uh, have been contemplating a launch. Um, to officially launch and declare uh, coming up on my birthday, March 21, and I'm giving serious consideration to whether or not uh, even a gathering of less than 250 people, which appears to be the number that the CDC u- is using, is wise or is responsible as, um, a, as this thing develops. Because here we are, I'm thinking about an event that's going to be a week um, a, a week plus away, nine days, nine days away. And from what I have seen, I have no confidence uh, of anything but that we are going to see continued concern and continued uh, reporting of increased uh, uh, tests for the coronavirus, because I believe that this has been around since December. This is not just a hunch, but people have told us it's been since December, and we just haven't been testing for it until recently. So that as the testing ramps slowly up, we're just going to be discovering more uh, cases that um, probably we would have found earlier had there been testing.
0: Well, I just offer a contrast here, and this is in no way to be partisan. This isn't a political comparison. It's rather to offer potentially a silver lining, a hopeful note to the situation we now find ourselves in. If you look at the plan that Joe Biden just released, and I would note that Joe Biden helped lead the governmental response to the 2009 H1N1 pandemic and the 2014 Ebola epidemic, so he has some useful experience in this regard, some of the elements from that plan jump out to you as common sense best practices and things notably that we could do right now and that could start to make a difference if we started to do them right now. He proposes establishing at least 10 mobile testing sites and drive through facilities per state to speed up testing and to protect healthcare workers. He suggests, to your point about the importance of clear, consistent fact-based information, providing a daily public White House briefing on how many tests have been done to hold himself and the whole government accountable. He suggests directing the Department of Defense to prepare for potential deployment of military resources, to activate the Medical Reserve Corps, which is 200,000 volunteer healthcare professionals, to stand up multi-hundred-bed temporary hospitals in any city, and to activate the existing federal medical stations that are in the Strategic National Stockpile. So you just run down a list like that, and it's immediately obvious that these are things that the government could do right now. Will they help tomorrow? Do they have a lag time? No. And yes. However, if we were to get started now, if the government were to really get its act in gear along these lines, yes, they could begin to make a difference over the next couple of weeks, and they could begin to flatten that curve, as you alluded to before.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, it's the temptation to speak in partisan terms is, is there. Um, I uh, I happened to be scrolling through Fox News last night and um, the president had given an address to the nation about uh, his plans turned on Fox News, what they were talking about was Democrats. And the fact that they claimed that Democrats were just dumping on the president irresponsibly, and that's all they were going to talk about, was how bad the Democrats were, instead of talking about the kinds of practical steps to take to deal with coronavirus. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes. We're talking with Matt Robison of a More com and thealternet.org. Uh, we are on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet. We are going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, and we will be back after this. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And we're talking with Matt Robeson, one of our favorite frequent flyer guests. He's become a regular here on Off the Record because he's a smart guy about politics and other important things. He writes... The more perfect union forum.com blog, uh, and he also writes for the alternate.org, which you can find on the internet. It's called The Alternate on the Internet. Uh, in our first segment, we talked about the coronavirus, and now let's turn to politics, Matt. It's been a wild and woolly time in on the American political scene. Uh, a little bit affected by coronavirus, to be sure, as folks are canceling large events. But the Democratic primary that you and I have talked about uh, quite a bit uh, is taking some very interesting shape. Most recently, uh, with uh, not following Super Tuesday with. What do we call it? Um, Consequential Monday, Uh, including the state of Michigan, the delegate count in the Democratic primary is is um, is uh, is moving. And at this point, Vice President Biden has moved into a substantial lead in the delegate count over uh, Bernie Sanders in this two person race. Uh, Joe Biden had uh, recent endorsements. Kamala Harris. Cory Booker, both uh, persons of color, uh, endorsing uh, Vice President Biden, who seems to have ridden a surge of voter turnout that didn't turn out for Bernie Sanders, as Sanders said it would, because Bernie has said that he's built a movement and the young people are going to come out and everybody else is going to come out and vote for him because he's building this big coalition. But it is looking like the numbers are turning out for Biden, that it's a true grassroots movement, that Democrats, many of whom decided late, seem to have decided that Joe Biden is the guy to take on Donald Trump, to heal the nation. And, you know, in looking at this, you can look at all the statistics, and we can talk about some of that for sure, but there's another thing that strikes me, and it is both... Um, an uh, under-the-surface kind of deeper thing, and it's also very superficial, and it's an instance where it seems to come together in the following way. Just taking a look at the demeanor of the two candidates, you've got Bernie Sanders, who's, frankly, he seems always angry. He's lecturing, he's hectoring, he's... Telling us what's wrong. He's complaining about the Democratic establishment. Um, And a lot of people seem to be turning to each other and say, wait a second. I'm not the Democratic establishment. I'm a Democratic voter. Does that make me part of the establishment? Does that make me part of some... DNC conspiracy because I'm a Democratic voter and I've been a Democrat and I want to see the country going in a different direction. Sure, I like Bernie's policies. We all would love to have free health care completely and free colleges and free everything, but he just seems so angry. And then you contrast that with Joe Biden, who has a folksier, frankly, bigger smile approach to politics. He's all about, folks, yes, we can. We can come together and do this. We're Americans. We love our country. When we're doing good, we're doing right. When we're doing right, we're doing good. And we can do that again. We can recapture the soul of America. And he says it with a smile. And he's empathetic with people. He's not blaming everybody. I mean, he's going after Donald Trump. But he's the guy with the smile. So on one hand... You've got this sense of the angry guy who's angry at everybody. And on the other hand, you've got a sense of the happier guy who says, folks, we can do this together. And so far, it's not just Pollyanna, but it seems to be that people are eager for some hope. They are eager for somebody with a positive message. And they're flocking to Joe Biden.
0: Yeah, I think that the other thing that they're hungry for right now is competence, and that his theme of a return to normalcy, which is a throwback to a campaign theme a hundred years ago, is resonating. And we have some pretty good evidence and analysis that suggests that that's one of the reasons why he's resonating so strongly in the African-American community. It seems pretty clear that there's been a sharp contrast, as we alluded to in the last segment, between his relative degree of competent and being on the ball and, and knowledge and experience with the uh, incompetence of the current response to the coronavirus. So, yes, I think that that has begun to resonate. And I think that if there's been a lesson from the nomination process thus far, it's that declaring that things are over, getting ahead of oneself is always a mistake. However, at this point, forecasting is saying that Biden does have a greater than 99% chance of getting a majority of delegates and he does seem to be the all but certain nominee. It uh,
1: it seems to be going that way. Now, Bernie of course had a had a had an opportunity uh, after the the recent most recent primaries to go home to Vermont um and kind of try to collect his thoughts about what he was going to do and what he came out with um as a collected thought was I'm not going anywhere I'm not dropping out we've got a a, a debate coming up on Tuesday and if Matt correct me if I'm wrong I think it's a debate that's going to be without an audience because uh, it's uh, which is a very very different dynamic. That's more like a discussion than a debate, um, because the energy of an audience really counts a lot. But Bernie has said he's not dropping out. On the other hand, there are some of the things that he said that seem to be hinting towards um, his uh, towards an exit ramp. That seem to be hinting about the glide path that he might take if he. Uh, magnanimously decided to uh, suspend his campaign, um, but it it certainly can't be easy to be Bernie Sanders right now.
0: No, and I think it, it's as you know, campaigns frequently reach this, point, uh, and they have to make some adult decisions about what's in their best interest. In this case, it's a particularly poignant choice for Senator Sanders, who has been fairly consistent as uh, an aggressive advocate for his view of the changes needed in American politics and policy for a long time. And I think the decision that confronts him now is that he is, in the next week or so, likely going to have the maximum amount of leverage. And it is a lot of leverage. Over the decisions that a nominee, Joe Biden, would have to make about platform, about cabinet, about D.P. selection, about an entire agenda, should he actually win the election. If Senator Sanders, and I'm not trying to make this sort of an ultimatum argument, but it does seem to have reached a point where if he wants to maximize the accomplishment for his view of the change that needs to happen in American politics, the time for him to strike is now. And by strike, what I mean is sit down and have a grown-up conversation with Joe Biden about what you want and about how you're going to aggressively go out, campaign for him, do everything you can to make sure the Democrats win the election. But here's what you want to see in return. And I guarantee you that that's a conversation that Joe Biden is eager to have.
1: Well you say that Joe Biden is 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 eager to have it i mean that 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 relies uh some on uh biden's personality uh which tends to be a personality that wants to get along and make up and work with people and you'll recall that he was somewhat, he was kind of castigated for that early on in the primary by many of the early um, early campaigners for the presidency. People were saying, you know, look, you cottoned up to uh, folks who weren't four-square, On all kinds of issues for Democrats, whether it's race or war or anything else, you kept talking to all these people and Biden kept saying, yeah, I kept talking to all those people. They're friends of mine. And that's the way politics ought to work, where you reach across the aisle, where you maintain good relationships in order to get things done, even while you know that they're not... Foursquare with you on whatever the issues are. You know that as people, you got to work with them because they may have been elected from places where people think very differently than you, and that certainly would apply to Biden and Bernie in terms of whether or not uh, Biden would would be amenable to the kind of let's call it productive outreach and productive healing that might. Uh, have to go on. So on balance, I'd say you're right. Uh, His personality and his history would suggest that he would reach out uh, to Bernie. Um, But what kind of common ground do you think they could really find together? Where, Where are the places where their feelings and their values intersect?
0: You know, they're actually not that far apart from each other in a lot of ways on policy. But the most immediate common ground, and this is what Senator Sanders himself said a few days ago, is their burning passion to defeat Donald Trump, which is shared by the vast majority of the Democratic Party. And the reason I feel so confident about Senator, Senator, Vice President Biden's interest in reaching an understanding with Senator Sanders is, he truly does need him politically. One of the things that's percolated throughout Democratic circles in the last few days since it became apparent that Joe Biden really is all but certain to be the nominee is this sense that, don't we have a problem looming? Isn't it an issue that in 2016, fewer than 80% of Sanders voters in the primary actually voted for Clinton in the general election. About 10% of them chose to vote for a third party candidate, mostly Jill Stein. And about 12% of them actually turned around and voted for Donald Trump. And you and I went over these numbers last time, and I won't repeat them per se, but the margin of Sanders voters who switched to Trump in the general were vastly greater in Michigan, in Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania than Trump's margin of victory. So there were a lot of things that went wrong for Democrats in 2016, but it is fair to say that this is a critical factor. It's a BFD, as Joe Biden would say. (laughs) And so there is definitely a conversation that is worth having because Bernie Sanders could play a really critical role in deciding whether or not Democrats win in November by helping to stave off that kind of defection to third parties or defection to Donald Trump.
1: Well, I, I agree with you. There is um, looming, looming on the horizon as this comes into focus the question of the Sanders supporters uh, because they are passionate, they are committed, they have been passionate and committed for a long time. Uh, There are a large number of them. And of course, I'm, I'm saying all this assuming that things come out as they appear to be heading and Biden ends up as the nominee. And you've got this large army of people who have been passionately committed to Sanders and who, You know, many of whom, as you said, um, uh, switched their votes from Sanders to Trump because they would never vote for Hillary Clinton, a large percentage of whom at least up to now have been reported to say, I'll never vote for any Democrat other than Bernie. Uh, And it's a question that the Democratic Party and the eventual nominee, if it is Biden, will have to wrestle with. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet at NHTalkRadio.com, where you can find our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're talking with Matt Robeson of A More Perfect a blog devoted to the deeper dive into politics, as well as an author on thealternet.org. We're going to take a short break to hear from the good folks who keep our station on the air and in your radios. And we'll be back after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com where our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure any time of the day or night. You can revel in our past fun shows about politics, about the arts, about business. You can hear funny accents and serious talk. We're in podcast on google stitcher and itunes and we're talking today with a frequent flyer guest a really smart guy matt robeson of a more perfect union forum.com and uh, an author on the alternate.org talking about some of the deeper issues in politics what goes on underneath behind the behind the scenes under the surface so matt here's a question We've had a lot of candidates in this race. We started with, I don't know what, 147 Democratic candidates. Some have suspended. Some have dropped out. Many of them have earned delegates. What happens now? How does that work? Who gets the delegates? What happens at the convention? I mean, what's... What happens with the folks who've been pledged to Buttigieg and Warren um, and others? Where do they go? Or do they just get set adrift?
0: So I can give you a simple answer, and I can give you a simple answer with like a little bit more uh Nuance to it. Well, let's
1: let's let's the super simple simple answer. (laughs) Wait a second. Wait a second. second. I'll keep it
0: simple on both fronts. (laughs) Yeah, this is a simple
1: answer. It's a Hobson's choice, man. Listen, we're on off the record. This is off the record with Paul Hodes. This is all, our conversation is totally off the record. But we're never simple. I mean, you know me better than that. I never go for just the simple
0: answer. So, okay, let's. the, The simple, simple, simple answer is hopefully it's going to be moot because if all the projections now hold and the, and trends continue as they are, we will end up having a nominee by acclamation. Now there are still scenarios where there is some kind of a tussle or where Senator Sanders refuses to release his delegates and refuses to have a nominee of Joe Biden by acclamation. So the slightly more technical answer and just as a kind of a future nomination design answer, is that there is a reallocation process. What you win in these primaries and caucuses is slots. You don't win the actual delegates. You win the slots that the delegates fall into, and there's a whole process for physical humans who fill those slots to get elected to them, and that process varies somewhat state by state, And so one of the reasons that you see campaigns suspending rather than formally ending, in many cases, is that it gives them a slightly greater degree of control over what happens to their delegates. There was one analysis about a week ago that said that of the hundred or so outstanding delegates with other candidates at the time they would split about 50-50 was literally like 49-49 to Sanders and Biden at the time. So essentially it would be a wash. I think your question does point out the larger issue, the the off-the-record deep-dive issue, that you and I touched on a few weeks ago, which is that the Democratic nominating process is dumb. We have seemingly lucked into a coalescing and a consolidation around one candidate, the process has not done anyone any favors, and Democrats would be very wise to reconsider the whole thing from scratch. And the biggest challenge that they have in front of them this year, right now, is trying to finish that consolidation, that coalescing, and trying to bring those Bernie Sanders voters back into the fold and avoid the scenario that we saw in 2016.
1: Well, how do you do that? I mean, how how do you do that? I, I don't mean to be um a a a a spreader of gloom and doom about the process but it's a really important question one of the biggest fears among democrats has been if bernie doesn't make it does his army go rogue if his if bernie doesn't make it do they say hey we don't care Biden or Trump, it's all the same to us. If it's not Bernie, we're folding up. Either we're going home and we're not coming out, or we're going to vote for third parties, or we're going to write in Biden, or we're going to vote for Trump. And, you know, it's all been a conspiracy by the Democratic National Committee corporate elite. Those elites have have done it into Bernie again. And uh, if you thought we were mad before, I mean, if you thought 2016, was a problem for Democrats. Just wait, folks. We are ready to uh, to take it to the mat this time because now we're doubly mad. Who and how do you deal with that? I mean, what's Bernie going to say? Listen, people, I know this is all now about millionaires and billionaires who are running things, but don't worry about that because I didn't make a point about it, but... I'm actually a millionaire myself. So you notice I, started, I stopped talking about millionaires, and I'm just talking about billionaires now. But, but we got a billionaire in the White House, and because I'm not going to run anymore, I think that you people ought to, ought to support Mr. Biden, and that's about all I'll say about it. Goodbye, good luck, good riddance. I'm going to my cabin, my little shack, my $700,000 shack on the shores of Lake Champlain. I mean,
0: all right, let me give how's that, the good how's, news.
1: How's that going to <laughs> pl- play?
0: All right, well, let me give the good news version of this for Democrats who are concerned. And I do think it is mostly good news. I took a very close look at all of the evidence, both sides. I really wanted to be objective about this. And I published this piece on alternate.org today. Uh, if you want to look it up, and listeners can judge for themselves based on everything I lay out. Yes, there is reason for concern. We've laid out what that reason is. The the numbers of Sanders primary voters who went to either third party or Trump, much more damagingly to Trump, in 2016 were indeed significant and election swinging. It's also a little bit of a concern that in polls conducted over the last six weeks, you get a pretty consistent finding that there are Still, 15% of Sanders supporters who say that they will not vote for another nominee on the Democratic side. That's one five. Is that one five? Is that one five? That's
1: one five. Yes, that's one five. One
0: five percent.
1: Well, that by the way, by the way, wait, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm going to interrupt because that is down from the previous numbers. Uh, Newsweek reported some few months ago that 53% of Sanders voters were saying they'd never vote for anybody else. That's a substantial change.
0: So you know what makes up that difference? This is pretty interesting. It makes it up almost exactly to the number. Nothing has changed in a way. It's all in how you look at the numbers. So an additional 30% are saying it depends, which... Uh, To quote a famous movie, what they're really saying is, so you're saying there's a chance. And what that really means is that there is an opportunity here. And if Bernie Sanders himself becomes engaged, if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has vast credibility within the Democratic Socialist movement, uh, gets engaged, as she has said in the last week, that she will be to support Joe Biden. There is a real opportunity to really shrink down that gap substantially. And there's some good reason to think that that's going to happen. Um, For one thing, we have lived through the last four years. And so in 2016, there was a ton of polling that shows that voters thought of Trump as a moderate. And his image was widely held to be as a major business success, a very competent leader. Those perceptions have been set right by events uh, and by uh, subsequent policy actions and are no longer held. There was also the factor that in the run-up to the election, in the three weeks prior to the election, the New York Times analysis, as of October 18, 2016, was calculating a 91% likelihood of a Clinton victory. So that gave voters this illusion that they had the luxury of a protest vote or sitting it out. And that's a mistake that they're much less likely to repeat. And then finally, if you look at the level of turnout that we've seen so far in the Democratic primary, up 26%, and also, by the way, up most strongly in the areas and states that Joe Biden has won, you can see, an not unprecedented, but certainly a very robust level of enthusiasm that could easily swamp those negative numbers of Sanders voter defections that we saw in 2016, Clinton got 600,000 fewer votes in those three key Rust Belt states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, than Barack Obama did in 2012. So if we saw Democratic turnout, even within a, uh, approaching, even within a, you know, a, a stone's throw of 2012 levels, we would erase those losing margins. So there's a lot of reason here to think that, yes, Sanders being on board, making sure his supporters get back on board and don't turn to Trump, that's going to be critically important. But there's good reason to think that that Democrats can get that
1: done. You know, the other thing, there's one other factor that is, I think, uh, underappreciated in addition to those factors. And of the factors you've listed, I I, I really do think uh, from where I sit that the turnout factor is perhaps the most important. It's it's always been the case that when Democrats turn out, we win. When they don't turn out, we don't. And uh, Democrats uh, have been somewhat fickle about turnout, as I know painfully from my own experience. Running in 2010, a midterm, uh, the midterm of Obama's first term, uh, turned out to be a very low turnout time for Democrats, who, along with everybody else, were uh, a little bit battered by a financial crisis, by uh, having to invest in uh, bailing out the country and bailing out the banks. It didn't turn out, and Democrats in including yours truly, uh, got clobbered all over. We lost 60 seats in the House of Representatives in Washington, 100 seats in the House of Representatives here in New Hampshire, um, and suffice to say that I I got clobbered as well. And it was largely as a result of lack of enthusiasm and lack of turnout. But there is one other factor at work, and that is that the Joe Biden of today If you look not even very carefully at what he's talking about and about his policies and about how he's speaking about what he wants to do and wants to accomplish, the Joe Biden of today seems to be a much more progressive candidate than. The Joe Biden of yesterday has been painted by the competition. Now, I I know that we're going to deal with the with the uh, trumpeters coming after Biden and Barisma and Hunter Biden and all that hoo-ha, and the Senate's gonna investigate and that Fox News will give them something to talk about. But for Democrats who tend to lean aspirationally. Democrats who want to dream of hope. Democrats who want to, want to dream of elected officials whose vision for America is grand and who want to do the right things by people. The Joe Biden of today is frankly a lot more progressive than he used to be. And that may help assuage to some degree Some of the concerns of the Biden folks, I mean, of the of the Sanders folks who may be more willing to hold their nose and cast their ballot for a Biden uh, in in the hopes that the more progressive tilt that he's carried into this campaign will continue in the general.
0: Well, I'll just add an exclamation point to your point, which is that It is 100% true that I think with some some work together with Senator Sanders, uh, some of Sanders' supporters will be able to see what you're saying, which is that Joe Biden is offering a, a fairly progressive vision for America. And on top of that, the biggest factor shaping turnout, shaping an incentive to vote is negative partisanship and... Political scientists are more and more coming around to the view that that's what really shapes the electorate, negative partisanship, the fear, anger, and hatred at the other side. Now, that is a bad thing for America. It's a bad thing in general for America, but in this current crisis and given the incompetence, the dangerous incompetence that we've seen in leadership at the presidential level and the the, the urgency of trying to do something to address it, that is a tool that can really help unify the Democratic Party and opposition and may also be a factor in bringing Sanders supporters uh, on board and coalescing.
1: We're giving the last word to Matt Robeson, who's been our guest on Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM. Matt is the author of a more perfect dot com, a blog devoted to politics. He's an author of on alternate dot org. Matt, thanks for joining us.
0: Pleasure to be here.
1: We'll be back after this to wrap up. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. dot com and we are a podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes what a show what a show what a show we talked with Matt Robison who's become one of our favorite folks here at Off the Record Matt is a very smart guy he uh writes a blog called a more perfect Forum.com, and he's an author on the alternate.org which you can find on the internet we talked about the coronavirus and its implications for us as a people and the lack of response that's being coordinated from up on high. Folks, it's going to be up to us to take common sense measures to try to tamp down the spread of this very, 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 uh, bad disease and keep it from spreading. We're all going to have to take common sense pre- pre- precautions and keep up to date uh, with with the right kind of information and facts. And we talked about the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. It looks like Joe Biden is going to be the nominee, and we'll see what develops as time goes on with Bernie and Bernie's supporters. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL and FM. Folks, thanks for listening. We want to thank all those who support the station. Thank you for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week with more Off the Record with Paul Hodes. And in the coming weeks, there may be some changes in the show. Once I declare my candidacy for the state Senate, we may turn this... Whole thing over to Matt Robeson with occasional guest appearances by yours truly. Uh, We'll have a a great show. It's going to be a great time coming. Thanks for listening here on Off the Record. See you next week.